Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So in six days, you guys, it'll all be over. It'll be a different world. By the next time we sit down to record this podcast, it'll be done. We hope. That's true. We, or we... just beginning. <laughs> yeah, the, the long national nightmare is dead. Long live the long national nightmare. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty Where much. will you guys be spending uh, the end of our long national nightmare? How will you ring in the the, the vote counts? I am going to wait and see how close the polls are because there's one sort of version of election night where I can like do an all you can eat brisket and uh, jovially toast the beginning and or end of our democracy. There is another version in which I will be not suitable company, probably drinking a large amount of alcohol and hiding under a table. How about you, Shane? I'll almost certainly be drinking a large amount of alcohol and, and monitoring. On either set of facts. On either though, set of facts, just because it's Tuesday. <laughs> Where will you be, though? At home, monitoring uh, the internet for online, for uh, voting shenanigans and hacking. You know, it's funny. I have had five or six reporters reach out to me to ensure that they had my cell phone number in case the election, like the internet goes down on an election and they need to get a comment quickly. Like making sure that people will be reachable, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was, you know, it's smart to prepare. It's like Y2K. Yeah. yeah. Boy Scout and all, and all you journalists. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the new national nightmare will soon begin edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast here in the studio six days out with my friends Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hey. Tammy has wisely fled the country. She is uh, in an undisclosed location. Will she be back for the election? She will. Okay. She will be back um, on Friday. Okay. So she can still vote. I early voted today. I early voted this weekend. Yeah. It was a really pleasant, easy experience. Everyone was just very happy to be there. The D.C. Board of Elections posts the wait times. You can, like, see how long it's going to be. Wow. Yes. And I'm only on the electoral rolls once right now. Oh, is Benjamin Sittis dead? Benjamin Sittis, my alter ego, was who was accused of voter fraud, um, was has been removed from the voter rolls. Finally? Finally. How long did that take you to get him off? Well, so I tried and tried and was never able to get him off the rolls. And then one day, apropos of nothing, years later, I got a menacing letter from the uh, Board of Election and Ethics saying that uh, I think they suspected a, a case of, of uh, voter fraud. And they, unless I did something, they were going to remove Benjamin Sittis from the voter rolls. And then he was gone. Like, go ahead, please. Right, do. Exactly. It's only what I've been oh, asking no. for. Oh no! Please for, don't. For years. <laughs> I yeah. I am not glad at the uh, the demise of Benjamin Sittis. Ben's alter ego. So I, to be fair, Benjamin Sittis uh, is actually not an example of in-person voter fraud because he never voted, but he is an example of um, uh, badly maintained voter rolls, and he came into existence one day when I uh, decided when I was a went to the wash when I went to the Washington Post first that if I was going to write editorials for an independent newspaper as the Washington Post then as now describes itself I should be a registered independent right. so I tried to re-register as an independent and in its wisdom the board of election and ethics did not change Benjamin Wittes from Democrat to independent, left me as an independent but added a gentleman named Benjamin Sittis at my same address uh, to the electoral rolls, and he was on it for a good long time. Wow. I, I want to say eight or ten years. So I had a very, I had a, not a, not that kind of crazy experience, but a similar problem where I tried twice in this last month to change my address and my party affiliation, uh, and uh, I couldn't do it. And when I went to early vote this morning, they had my old address still, uh, and it just had not taken up in the system. I tried twice online and called 
once. They said they'd resolved it. And they said, well, do you have anything on you that proves your residency? And they said, it could be like something even on your cell phone. And I actually did have something in my bag that proved my residency. But I thought, wow, this is feels that felt a little slipshod, maybe. But yeah, so at least it's fine. Everything else about the election is going perfectly fine <laughs> and according to plan. So I, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. They did say I could vote in my old precinct. <laughs> I said, you know, I haven't lived there in two years. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> No, you should do. You should vote in both places just to be sure. No, just that's what I've heard. That would be a felony. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, we're not going to do that. All right. We are going to do this podcast though. This week, FBI Director James Comey, oh James Comey, under fire for his actions in the home stretch of the presidential election. A journalist suggests private communications between Donald Trump and a Russian bank, but is there any there there? And investigators issue a puzzling finding about the death of one of Vladimir Putin's closest aides in a Washington, D.C. hotel room. Uh, first, let's talk about Jim Comey. Um, just to catch everybody up really quickly, you probably don't need to be, but last Friday, the FBI director sent a letter to uh, Democratic and uh, Republican committee heads saying... In the course of a separate investigation, we came upon some emails that may be pertinent to the Hillary Clinton email investigation, which I had previously told you was effectively wrapped up. That's no longer the case. We're looking at the emails to figure out what they are, what they mean. I will keep you apprised. Um, Fair to say this landed like a giant nuclear turd in the punch bowl. Uh, in the elections, uh, it came out subsequently that, of course, the emails came pursuant to a separate investigation of Anthony Weiner's laptop or Anthony Weiner's communications and communication with his sexting with a 15-year-old girl. Anthony Weiner, of course, married to Huma Abedin, who apparently used this laptop maybe to send or receive some Clinton-related emails. And now we have... Uh, news coming out that uh, Attorney General Lynch and other senior Justice Department officials advised against Comey coming public because are uh, going to Congress with this information because it would violate longstanding Justice Department policy not to take actions like this in the days before an election. Um, where to begin with this? Um, ben, why don't you start? I mean, just cause sort of, you know, I think I've laid out kind of the narrative, but where does Jim Comey find himself in this particular extraordinary moment? And and we'll get to the, the the sort of the longer term questions for him, but like where is he right now? And uh, and and I guess to the extent that you want to weigh in on it, what you think about his decision uh, in this rather extraordinary case? All right. So, I mean, first of all, uh, Comey is a friend and uh, somebody whom I uh, think very highly of, and I'm um, and I simply do not believe. Uh, as a judgment about him that he, you know, actively sought to intervene in the election either to poison the well for Hillary Clinton or to advantage Donald Trump. I, I you know, exactly, uh, there, as I will shortly lay out, I think there are legitimate grounds for criticism here. Um, but, a lot of the rhetoric around this has been extreme and crazy and dumb. And um, so that's point number one. Point number two is that, uh, you know, I, I think this surely uh, in retrospect, uh, this was not, I suspect, the way he wishes the last week had gone. And, um, uh, and I am you know, would be very surprised if you replayed the tape, if he would play his cards the same way a second time. Um, Betty just looks at boats online all day now. <laughs> imagines it's sailing away. I should buy a boat. Right. So, so look, I mean, this is a situation in which he was in an impossible situation, had a very bad hand dealt him and played it badly. Um, and I think... You know, the hard question here is what the point at which he should have behaved differently was. Um, but I think, uh, it certainly is not, was not a, a good idea 10 days before the election to loose such a politically explosive and yet contentless, uh, fact as that as there are emails, we need to look at them. 
we have no idea what they say. We have no idea what, if any, implications they have for uh, our previous investigative conclusions. Uh, now, I do think, as I say, he was in an impossible situation. And the reason he was in an impossible situation is partly of his own making, that when he uh, uh, determined over the summer that this investigation was complete, he... Uh, he said a lot. He said a lot uh, as a matter of his own choice. And then he uh, both released a great deal more information and went to Congress and answered quite detailed questions about the conduct of his investigation and the conduct found on her part by the investigation. And he promised in that context that if anything changed, he would keep Congress abreast of, of it. And so I think, you know, he arguably dug himself into a very, into a hole, uh, over the summer. Um, but exactly what the right way for him to handle this situation was, is, is a quite difficult question, I think. And it would have been, um, I, I think he was probably in a damned if he does, damned if he doesn't situation. That said, he did, and now he's damned for it. Uh, and I think he really has hurt himself. So, look, I think we should be, like, honest in the safe space of the Jungle Studio um, that there are two evaluations of this conduct that are going to occur, right? One is uh, from the moment he wrote the letter until the until we know the results of the election, Um uh, that is, in all candor, an emotional response, right? How bad was this, right? Um, a lot of people are feeling really freaked out about the response in the polls, some of which might be attributable, some of which are certainly attributable to Comey, but but probably not all of the tightening of the polls, right? It's um, uh, The question is whether or not Jim Comey um, uh, has handed the presidential election to Donald Trump. Um, so I think we'll have sort of, uh, we're going to have a particular conversation up until the election. Um, that's going to be a very, uh, uh, it's going to be very hard on Jim Comey, um, in part because uh, one way to mitigate the damage of the actual disclosure is to try and make the story about Comey, right? To eliminate the amount of time or, or reduce the amount of time um, uh, that sort of the media and the public are discussing the emails, which are, um, uh, right, a reminder of sort of Hillary Clinton's biggest liability. Um, uh, and, and more time they can be discussing sort of, right, the, um, uh, the internecine politics of the Justice Department and FBI. That's better for the campaign. Um, and so we're going to have that, um, that conversation. I think it's going to be, uh, harder and harder on Jim Comey. Uh, I don't know that that's, um, uh, I'm not sure sort of whether or not strategically that's the right answer about how to mitigate the damage. Um, that's clearly the, the Clinton campaign thinks that's the only sort of um, that's the only path here. And so we're going to walk it for the next six days. Um, the conversation we have about Jim Comey's letter that comes next depends a lot on what happens on November 8th. If Donald Trump is elected president, um, I, I think not unfairly, um, history will judge Jim Comey rather harshly. Um, they will say you made a, a calculation uh, that was wrong and, and it had disastrous consequences. Um, if uh, Hillary Clinton is elected president, um, I think that we will view this a little bit differently. Um, it obviously depends whether or not Hillary Clinton is elected president with also with the Democratic Senate, um, or whether or not Hillary Clinton uh, is elected president and, and the uh, Republicans uh, uh, retain control of the Senate. Um, there'll be sort of variations in this. Um, and so I think that in terms of the actual substance, um, it's going to be sort of outcome determinative, right? So Jim Comey did this thing. It had a lot of risks. We're seeing the, the we're staring down the barrel of the worst of those risks right now. Um, if Clinton wins, especially if the Senate goes to the Democrats, I think that there's a strong case to be made for, all right, Jim Comey gambled. He got, a, he got a little bit risky, but it worked out. And the fact that it worked out probably means he was smart to have done it because he's probably saved us a, a whole lot of post-election trouble when eventually this information emerged, right, that, they, that the FBI had known in the weeks leading up to the election and decided not to disclose. So I, I do think it's important to sort of be candid about what is slam Jim Comey because it's uh, – 
a scary emotional sort of period. And and uh, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I think he deserves to take his lumps right now versus having uh, sort of this longer conversation or, or more substantive conversation about the the relative wisdom of sending the letter. I don't think we can have that conversion until November 9th. But hold on. Let me push back on this a little bit because can't we have that conversation now because, I mean, what Lynch and others have said reportedly is you should have just followed the guidelines. He could have, after the election, he would have absolutely taken hell from Republicans, whereas now he's being held up as a you know crusader for law and order. Uh, he could have said, there's longstanding guidance on this. I am falling back on the guidance. And we now have reports that he reportedly objected to releasing the uh, intelligence community assessment attributing the hacks of the DNC and elsewhere to Russia because it came too close to an election. So he, if we believe that story, he has taken these things up, these controversial matters up before, in light of an election and decided to withhold. Uh, reportedly also wanted to hold back on uh, talk about Paul Manafort being investigated, the Clinton Foundation being investigated. Right. So I, I get why he did this, but he could have fallen back, it seems, on the guidelines as a defense. So yes and no. So I actually want to respond to both of your points. Uh, first of all, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that this has had a significant impact on the election. Um, if you look at the, the, the polls, they were tightening in uh, – in Trump's direction before uh, Comey's announcement. Uh, they have tightened less in the days since Comey's election, uh, Comey's announcement. Is this according to the Wittes forecast? Moment? No, no, no. This is according to most of the polling averages. And if you look, for example, at the 538 model, it closed uh, – uh, it, it has – Comey's announcement comes right in the middle of a downslope in Clinton's uh, probability of winning. And most of the polling averages suggest the same thing. So if you look at the Washington Post ABC poll, which closed very dramatically, 10 points of that close are before Comey's announcement. Three points of that close are after Comey's announcement. And then it stabilizes. So I actually... I, I actually think, you know, even, uh, Nate Silver has written about this, that it's really unclear to what extent uh, Trump's rise in recent days owes how much to Comey. So I think the question, I, I agree with you, Susan, that if Trump were to win, it will be blamed on Comey. Uh, I'm just not sure whether that is whether 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 Comey's announcement, what kind of role it is playing in in the actual electoral uh, machinations that are going on now, as to Shane's point, I do think there is a big difference between this election, uh, between this investigation and the other ones on which Comey uh, has, seems to have scrupulously observed uh, Justice Department policy uh, on sort of not doing anything overt in the immediate run-up to the election. And the, the difference is that back in July, he went up to Congress and he made a set of representations that this investigation was done that uh, and that specifically, if anything changed, he would let Congress know. And that, uh, I do think, makes it a more difficult case than your normal case, where I just think saying nothing is clearly the right answer. And while I don't think he made the right call here, um, I, I do think that situation of being very personally uh, potentially accusable of having misled Congress on this puts this in a somewhat different category than the Manafort situation or the uh, Clinton Foundation situation. Um, well, let's update this story just a little bit, too, because there's, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. And uh, today, President Obama sat down for an interview with Now This News. And he was asked about this question of the timing and what people should make of the timing of Jim Comey's revelations. And the reporter for Now This asked him, were you yourself upset at the timing at all, with the timing at all? Uh, and Obama stressed that he didn't want to avoid, he wanted to avoid the appearance of himself becoming involved in the political process, but he said, quote, there is a norm that when we are investigating, we don't operate on innuendo. We don't operate on incomplete information. We don't operate on leaks. Um, 
he wasn't asked about Comey. He didn't mention Comey by name, but he was clearly responding to a co- question about Comey and his decision. And it's obvious that that's how it, the response should be read. Um, there wasn't a leak involved here, but I mean, clearly choosing the words innuendo, incomplete information. I mean, this is the president, I mean, pretty clearly sending a signal that he is, strongly disagrees with what Comey did and thinks he messed up. Well, so it's a really interesting question whether he's just criticizing Comey here or whether he's also criticizing the people around the attorney general. Because there were leaks Mm. here, big, big, big leaks. And those leaks were conducted by the Justice Department in response to Comey's uh, um, disclosure. Not to mention plenty out of the FBI. uh, Yeah, although I'm not sure that the Wiener stuff, if you read the stories, those seem to be coming from the Justice Department. And so what I I think what the president is saying here uh, is – you know, he's sort of accusing Comey of releasing incomplete information that's packed with innuendo, and he's criticizing the Justice Department for then following this up with a series of defensive leaks about the Attorney General and and the Deputy Attorney General having objected. So I think there's I th- I think it's a little bit more broad based the criticism than than the way it's playing. That said, look, he It's still about Comey. It, it is still about Comey and I um and I think, you know, Comey took a very bold step here that leaves himself open to that criticism. So look, I'm I'm probably going to butcher the precise details of this story, but it um I think it's it's relevant. And that's um uh, Wesleyan University, which is the alma mater of one Quinta Jurassic and also my mother. Um <clears throat> uh, at some point sort of in Have the you ever 19- seen a picture of them together? I have not. Maybe Quinta is my mother. Um <laughs> Uh, the, uh, Wesleyan University, sort of the, the president, sort of in the 1950s, <clears throat> took all of the money, uh, all of the money in the endowment and bought a bunch of stocks, right? Uh, just a blatant, a single form of stock, blatant violation of a fiduciary responsibility, just this enormous gamble, could have lost everything. Um, I, th- I believe that stock turned out to be Xerox and it ended up building this university, right? It was like the, the single most, uh, important investment. The way history looks back on that story, uh, there's two parts to it, right? There's the breach of the duty, and then there's whether or not it was a good or bad idea. Um, I, I think that's, uh, you know, whenever we hear, I think we'll hear Obama, I don't think we'll hear more from him, but I think Obama commenting now um, is uh, trying to tamp down and trying to indicate that he he views the breach um, uh, as being significant. Uh, the the larger question, um, I think, depends on whether or not there's you know there's a President Trump at the end of this. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, last question on this. I mean, it, it, well, maybe we're kind of getting around it, but I mean, if we were laying odds on whether he is going to resign or not, I mean, if there's a President Clinton, let's just say, I mean. It would obviously be extraordinary. It would be earth-shaking. But is that such a fanciful question? I mean, it seems to me that it's not at this point. So, look, I don't um, I don't think anybody can responsibly serve in public office if they are not prepared basically at any given moment to hand over their resignation, right, to offer their resignation uh, in order to do what they believe is the right thing. Um, I, I would not be surprised if, if Comey uh, is in a situation in which he doesn't think he can discharge the, the duties of the FBI director or whatever, if he uh, offers his resignation. And, and I, uh, I would be more surprised if, if uh, Clinton accepted it. Um, but I, I don't, um, despite sort of the, the more sort of um, uh, angry calls for his head, I think he's the FBI director a year from now. So I think there is zero chance he will resign in the short term. Um, I, I, I think he will see this matter through, see the election through, see the transition through. Uh, and I think there is a question uh, that, uh, look, uh, the, the, the president has a, uh, has the authority, contrary to common belief, to dismiss the FBI director at any time for any reason. Uh, and uh, so the key question here is, can Hillary Clinton, assuming she wins, and Jim Comey uh, uh, form a useful and constructive working relationship? And I 
think as with any FBI director, if the answer to that question is no, uh, there is a legitimate question as to whether that relationship uh, will be sustained in the presence of dysfunction. And, and, and I think the, the, the question of whether this episode has, as well as his very public criticisms of her over the summer, has poisoned the well of a uh, constructive relationship between the two for purposes of all the stuff that the FBI director does is a legitimate one. And I would hope that uh, the president-elect, uh, assuming it's Hillary Clinton, would be A, non-vindictive and B, appreciate that this is a person of extraordinary talents and uh, managerial ability uh, who, irrespective of uh, whether this episode was a, a, an error in judgment. So, I mean, I, I, I think that there's obviously a chance in the longer run that uh, he doesn't determine that he has, a, you know, a good relationship with the president who's ultimately his boss. Uh, and this episode certainly raises that question. One thing I do think is worth noting and worth noting to sort of um, uh, liberals at this point is if Donald Trump is elected, I cannot think of a single person I would want to see as the FBI director more than Jim Comey. Right. So this is a really, really important point that this is somebody who, um, you know, once stood up to a president and stared him down. In the when he was deputy attorney general, and just stood up to another person who's about he he had to assume was about to be elected president, and rightly or wrongly did what he thought was right and what he thought was required of him in the face of the knowledge certain knowledge that it would be extremely controversial. And I agree with Susan that. Uh, whatever you think of this decision, it would be very comforting in the presence of the horrific possibility of a Trump administration to know that we had such a person as FBI director. Here's my now I'm going to feel like I'm reading on a parade and we'll wrap this up. If you're looking at it though from Hillary Clinton's perspective, this is a campaign that in in the moment of this revelation on Friday turned the tables around and went guns blazing at the FBI director. And accused him, accused him of, I mean, essentially, I mean, I'll be, I'm not going to say they came out and accused him of being in league with Donald Trump, but I mean, they really they stopped just short of it. <clears throat> they really stopped just short of it. And the first question I say, I actually said this when I was being interviewed on this subject the other day, the first question I would want to ask me personally, Hillary Clinton, president elect, is do you still have confidence in James Comey as the FBI director? It seems like she is actually under more pressure to. I mean, well, she'll have to repair this. It'll be up to her it'll to be, publicly repair the relationship. It'll be up to both of them. But more her, because she's gone after him in a way now. And if he stays and, and she says, I have full faith and confidence in him, people will say, okay, well, A, you know, she won. And now, you know, she's kind of brought him to heel. That's how it'll be interpreted. But B, people will say, well, really, you were saying some pretty rough stuff about him before. Is that just all water under the bridge because you won? I mean, she didn't quite go to the point of saying that he is out of line and abusing his authority, but wow, they but turned think, fast on him. I think this is the upside of perceptions of Clinton's sort of transactional nature, right? Um, going after Jim Comey is what needs to be done this week in order to uh, not just have Clinton's candidacy survive, but to save the republic. And if that's what they think they need to do, uh, I think she's going all in on it. I I, I sort of doubt that they actually believe, uh, you know, some of what they're saying. Um, and I have no doubt that sort of the um, the flip side of this, this perception of her is that she can pretty quickly move past this. Um, you know, Bill Clinton had a very contentious relationship with his FBI director um, uh, that was not not necessarily dysfunctional. This, at this all. isn't new territory right, for exactly. the so um, <laughs> And I think Hillary Clinton actually, um, uh, of all people, um, might actually be a person who understands the value of having an FBI director. That it, the perception is that he is adversarial to you, especially if you believe that you that the Republicans are going to try and have you investigated. Um, I just think I think she's smart enough to get over it very quickly, and it would behoove her to do so. Okay, uh, let's move on to our next story. <clears throat> um, fascinating and uh, by turns very controversial and perplexing story that ran in Slate this week. 
by Franklin Foyer, uh, very notable, respected journalist uh, here in Washington, um, laying out some pretty complex technical data that essentially tried to show or to ask the question, is a server owned and operated by the Trump organization that is Donald Trump's company that he runs with his children in hidden and exclusive communications with a server run by Alpha Bank, which is the largest commercial bank in Moscow, uh, essentially raising the question of is there some kind of hidden communications channel between Trump and a Russian bank, which, of course, if there were, would be huge and explosive and revelatory considering that Donald Trump says he's never met Vladimir Putin, even though he said in the past that he had, says he has no business dealings in Russia, although he does. Uh, this would seem like kind of some technical uh, proof, something like a smoking gun, that there was this bizarre, strange communication. Um, the story has since been you know, roundly ridiculed, criticized, poured over, torn apart. Uh, 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 and I'm going to say in full disclosure, and we'll talk about this in a bit, um, I was pursuing this story for about three weeks pretty aggressively, and we ultimately decided not to publish it. And I'll talk about that. But um, maybe, I mean, Susan, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the reaction to this and your impressions of the story, too? I mean, given that this is you know, this is steeped in a fairly technical kind of world that shows digital communications, and sometimes we infer things from data like this that maybe is not really there. Right. So I, I don't. I mean, it's such the sort of the precise details are so in the weeds that um I and and have been debunked, not debunked. I, I think there is broad agreement on sort of the um the underlying technical details. Um, uh, Ford's original story um, essentially took a body of information and told uh, sort of the most suspicious, nefarious possible version of that story, right? It took. And Frank has written a lot about Trump's Russian connections before, we should say, as contact. Exactly. And, so and takes of- a very. Uh, um, uh, well, skeptical to put it mildly in view. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and in this case, sort of took a body of evidence and at, at every possible place where you could um, uh, infer something against Donald Trump or make the most extreme inference, uh, he chose that path. Um, so the the result is um, a lot of criticism, not saying the information is wrong, um, but saying, one, there are equally innocuous explanations for this. Um, and the evidence you present does not uh, does not support your ultimate conclusions. Um, <clears throat> and that was that was a pretty rapid thing, right? It sort of it got published within probably 20 minutes. Um, you had a number of sort of high-profile people, including people that were quoted in his story, um, basically saying this is sort of expert abuse, right? You're, you're, you're presenting this um, uh, sort of the opposite of Occam's razor, right? The most complex, nefarious explanation as opposed to the simplest one, which is essentially that it's a spam server. The simplest explanation being if Trump needed to communicate privately with a bank in Russia, why wouldn't he just pick up a phone? Right. Or you and if you needed a secure communications line, why wouldn't you use WhatsApp like the terrorists right. do? Right. Right. So that's why I actually think the journalism question here is the more interesting one. Um because frankly there's there's not enough underlying evidence to talk about the rest of it, right? I from this evidence it is possible that there's some kind of secret server, right? I, I don't know. Um there's nothing that refutes it, there's just nothing that supports it. Um so uh the interceptor with this like very long sort of uh, you know strangely personal of Franklin Farr takedown article about sort of everything that was wrong um with the article. And in it, they actually mentioned that not only The Intercept, but The New York Times, The Washington Post, Reuters, The Daily Beast, um, and Vice all examined these materials, and at, at least to some extent, and did not publish these claims. Um, so they're sort of using this as saying, you know, we were all responsible journalists, um, and you were not responsible, right? Which is a rich claim for The Intercept sure. to be making. Um, uh, so it's a week before the election. You have information. Um, there's probably not enough to tell the story that was told here. Um, so Shane, you, you've been thinking about this story for a long time. Why did you decide not to publish it? And do you think he was wrong to publish the story that he did? Uh, so I got alerted to this by a source probably three weeks or so ago. Uh, who first pointed out, he said, you should go check out this website that exists on the dark web uh, where this person is making these claims and presenting technical data that claims to show this communication between Trump and Alpha Bank. So I go to the website. I eventually make contact with the individual who put up the website who was quoted pretty extensively in Frank's story as going with the pseudonym Tea Leaves. And ultimately what I decided and what my editors decided was – 
couple things. One, this individual would not identify himself, not by name, not by specific affiliation. Where did he work? Who did he, you know, what, was he with the government agency? He was giving us enough broadly to sort of put him in the universe of people who would plausibly have access to the kind of data that could show these communications happening. And we're talking about DNS logs here, essentially. This is basically the metadata of the internet. This server contacted that server. It's not, did it send an email? It's not, what did the email say? It's just one talk to another. And there are all kinds of reasons that servers exchange these transmissions. Um, but he also could not tell us how he arrived at the information specifically. So we really didn't know, are you looking at the full universe of data here so that you can definitively say this server is only talking to that server? Or are you seeing effectively just a slice of communications and you're inferring some exclusive relationship when in reality there's all kinds of other uh, 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 uh pings on this server, if you want to think about it, that would say, yeah, this doesn't really look like something that was just set up to talk to him. So there were just all of these really insurmountable hurdles on a fairly fundamental level to the story. Um, it was incredibly enticing. Uh, you know, as a reporter, you hear something like this in your mind. Of course it does. Immediately goes to what it could look like on the page. But you know, your tradecraft. Practicing your, your Pulitzer speech. <laughs> right, in the right. I mean, come on, everyone's thinking that, right? But then you stop and you take a deep breath and you go back to the beginning. This is what responsible journalism is. And I think it is, uh, you know, I'll say this, and I don't mean this to, I'm, I'm not, I'll, I'll say what I'm going to think about Frank's piece in a second. It is very telling that this many of us passed on this. It's also very telling that this many of us dug into it this far. I mean, what you're not seeing in any of these criticisms, including by The Intercept, is, oh, we looked at this and immediately decided this was nonsense. People really did dig into it. The other thing that's notable is the New York Times later reported that the FBI also researched this claim. Uh, They didn't disprove it. They just determined that it was as probable that there was an innocuous explanation. So even the FBI examined it extensively and didn't disprove. So I I think that says something. Right. And one of the things that that Frank reported in his piece was that the New York Times not only dug into it, but went so far as to actually have a meeting with Alpha Bank to ask them about it. And when they queried Alpha Bank on the nature of this communication with the Trump server, the DNS logs show a flurry of communications going back and forth. And then the Trump mail server was apparently renamed. Now, I did, with independent experts, confirm that the server was renamed. Like we can, we know things about what this server is. We can have a pretty good sense if we don't think that the logs are just completely doctored that there, that there was this communication. Um, but yeah, but we just found ourselves facing just this fundamental wall that we could not get over and not by, not just by our journalistic standards, I think by pretty basic journalistic standards. The person was willing to, this tea leaves person was willing to give us names of people who would vouch for him, who would sort of speak on his behalf. And that helps. But as a journalist, there have been a few times, I can think of one or two in my career where someone has sent me information and I did not know the identity of the sender. But in those cases, it was verifiable information. It was much more concrete leads. And this required us to take a leap of faith, which Tea Leaves himself was clearly taking. Now, what Slate ultimately decided to do was frame this story as a puzzle saying, well, there's this really interesting information out there. It could mean this. It might mean that. It might not. Who knows? But it had this undeniably tendentious quality to yeah, it. Yeah, so I, I don't think they framed it. I mean, Frank Four is a is a, a friend, and, and I have somebody I've worked with closely. Uh, but I don't think this was framed as a puzzle. Um, this was framed as a... Uh, um, uh, suggestion that there appears to be a direct communication server between, um, between Alpha Bank and the Trump organization and that it, uh, is almost certainly authentic and that it's hard to come up with an explanation for what it could be other than that. And, and I, I think that is, uh, at the extreme boundaries of what the uh of what the facts there would suggest especially because uh there it's it's completely opaque what the underlying theory of the nature of the communications right. is and i think you know this would be a different picture if you had all this technical data and there were some story 
that you could evaluate about why Alpha Bank and the Trump Organization have a, a secret line of communication. But here there's no such um, uh, underlying theory. And so what you're left with is the atmospherics of the Trump-Russia relationship. Now, the Trump-Russia relationship is a very, very peculiar thing. And if people are, you know, if any listeners are thinking about um, whether they should vote for Donald Trump, uh, the uh, – this this relationship is one factor that I would strongly urge them to consider uh, whether that's a good idea. But the basis for that react, but the basis for that judgment is not uh, that there may be a dedicated server in the Trump uh, um, uh, organization to communicate with Alpha Bank. The basis for that judgment is the very public fact that Trump. Uh, continually praises Vladimir Putin, continually is praised by Vladimir Putin, uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin's intelligence services hacked the DNC and leaked material to WikiLeaks as a way of advantaging Donald Trump in this election, or at least disrupting this election and interfering with it, uh, that large numbers of, of Trump's senior people have worked with and for uh, stooges of Vladimir Putin and have peculiar affinities with uh, Vladimir Putin and his people, um, and that uh, Trump has publicly taken positions that are bizarrely favorable to Russia in uh, across a number of public areas. And I think when you put all that together, uh, you get a very peculiar relationship that I'm not exactly sure what a secret server without some theory about what that secret server is doing, what it adds to that picture. I think that's right. That's right. And we asked those same questions. And even if we could have gotten over the technical data, those would have been the next sets of questions that we asked, which is, OK, fine. They're talking to each other. Why? So one more thing about about. Trump that that the controversy over this story has somewhat buried, which is that there is a completely shocking story uh, over the last 24 hours about Trump and his connections, um, which is Mike Isakoff's story in Yahoo News that Trump, uh, after denying that he had a relationship of any kind with a particular mobster, in fact, uh, uh, was has a, they released a video of him with that mobster at a wrestling event, uh, and quoted the mobster's daughter, who was also in the video, uh, saying that they, she and her father, uh, were there as guests of Donald Trump and that he was at the same time, uh, hitting on her, though she was married. So, Donald Trump appears to, while while we've been debating the merits of the server story, uh, the real story, thanks to Mike Isikoff, is that Donald Trump uh, is cavorting with mobsters, hitting on their married daughters, and lying about it. Leave it to that, Mike Isikoff. All right. Um, let's go he's, to obs- he's obsessed with sex. <laughs> <laughs> what is your obsession God, with sex, is Mike Isikoff? <laughs> Uh, all right, let's go to our third story. Uh, <clears throat> speaking of minor obsessions, this has been one of mine. Um, so Mikhail Lesson, who was one of the founders of RT and the propaganda chief for Vladimir Putin. He had a bad night. He had a very bad night about a year ago. Almost and, of a day. Yeah, yeah. He woke up dead in a hotel room in Washington, D.C. Uh yeah, so he was found dead in a hotel room in Washington, D.C. in DuPont Circle under extremely mysterious circumstances, including what the hell he was doing in the United States in the first place, given that he had been investigated by a U.S. senator for possible money laundering uh, through real estate transactions in the United States. Um, <clears throat> the D.C. medical examiner at the time said that the cause of deaths was multiple blunt force trauma to the head, arms, legs, Neck, back, torso. I don't think I'm missing anything. I'm not sure there are any places on his body where there were not, is not evidence of blunt force trauma, but that the manner of death was undetermined. Uh, there were a number of stories about this. Subsequently, I did some reporting on it. Finally, in the past week, they've come out and said the manner of death was accident. 
uh, possibly apparently brought on by uh, severe intoxication and inebriation, which induced multiple falls. So apparently the man was literally fall down drunk. Uh, when I called the DC medical examiner and said, can you explain, did he fall these, you know, several dozen times and bruise and bludgeon himself outside the hotel room or inside the hotel room? I got a big fat no comment. So this is, I mean, uh, a f- like weird spy story that this um, uh, this decision is not going to put to rest any of the conspiracy theories, right? This is only going to make it more conspiratorial. He was here maintaining the private server. Right. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Um, right. So, I mean, essentially, you know, the, the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office came out and said, look, um, you know, they too had investigated this as, as a homicide. Um, but then they saw uh, video footage and witness interviews in which he's like he's unbelievably drunk. Um, he, he goes into his hotel room. Nobody else enters the hotel room. And so, quote, sustained injuries that result in his uh, death while alone in his hotel room. Um uh, so it's you know they they are um, they haven't released any of those videos. Um, uh, none of that information came out whenever the original reporters were sort of running down this story. Um, so it's uh, it is look it's it's highly suspicious. Although um, I'm not really one to presume a conspiracy explanation. Um, here it's just it's a very strange uh, strange thing. Um, look at the end of the day, the idea that you could blunt force trauma yourself to death yeah. is um is an odd one <laughs> i actually one person i interviewed at the, the dc medical examiner's office said well the best i could suggest is maybe go try and find a medical examiner or just google like really like google like accidental blunt force trauma death and you know, i haven't done that yet but I suppose it could happen. I, I mean, you could fall down a staircase and still be walking around and get to your hotel room and finally succumb to your injuries. But, but look, the only uh, explanation that's crazier <laughs> than the fact that he just unfortunately himself to death. I mean, the man is dead. We shouldn't laugh. The man He's is dead. This is true. He had children um, and a young one on the way. It's, uh, it's very sad. You know, it is a sad story. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, the only explanation that's more crazy than the official account is that there was a conspiracy theory and the U.S. Attorney's right. Office is now covering it up. So yeah, I, that's just I guess to believe, it, isn't it? it feels not fun to be like, well, I guess you just got I don't drunk. think they're competent enough to do that. I can totally believe that the Metropolitan Police Department is incompetent enough to not really be able to assess, you know, a homicide. But it may be in this case they got it right. So here's the question. Should the FBI and the MPD release information about this before the election or should they wait mm-hmm. well he is russian so they should probably wait right. i mean he's russian it has Out of some an abundance of caution it has something to he do with, with vladimir Vlad- putin if, trump has said some things about vladimir exactly putin. so i mean should, or, should you hold off on the theory that uh um that it could have some effect on the election or do you do you err on the side of making sure the American people are fully informed about self-inflicted blunt force trauma injuries or with a week to go before the election? Or Slate could run a story saying, you know, look, it's, it's a puzzle, but it is possible Donald Trump bludgeoned less into death in a D.C. hotel room. I mean, that's people that is saying. one explanation that at least some people are saying. Yeah. I think as a journalist, there's only one thing I have left have left to do, which is um, with regards to the medical report, I believe the technical term is to FOIA the shit out of that mm-hmm. report. Mm-hmm. All the FOIAs. All the FOIAs. <laughs> uh, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I want to go first because I'm going to say, you guys, I am really in love with my object lesson, which I'm going to pull up for you right now. Uh, my husband, Joe, and I have maybe one of my favorite Halloween costume duos in several years. Ben hasn't actually seen this photo yet, but it's been on social media. It's been making the rounds. Mm-hmm. We went as Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear. Excellent. Good. You saw it, right? I you did see it. it. So this is me in a bear costume with a white dinner jacket and bow tie and Joe in a like like argue like inarguably cozy looking like bear outfit with floppy ears and a silk bathrobe <laughs> and he has bear slippers on and we each have these hammer and sickle stars which i know it's not russia but come on it's too good um for those of you who don't get it, like 90 percent of our listeners get this but fancy bear and cozy bear are the monikers given i think by crowdstrike right mm-hmm. yeah to the uh the russian hacker outfits that broke into the dnc at all um so the security nerds in my twitter feed 
loved this. And the rest of our gay friends thought we were into bears. Awesome. Which is fine. They I'm, may I'll have think. already had the bear costumes lying around the house. I was like, we never comments. took you for a bear type. And if you don't know what that is, Google. Uh, or the shit out of it. the shit out of the bears. Uh, ben, would you like to share your object lesson? My object lesson is empty. Oh. It is the bottle of scotch that has been for the last uh, bit of time the official rational security bottle of scotch. Um, for like two weeks. I think this is a bad <laughs> omen. <laughs> so That didn't take long. This is a bottle of Bunnahabhain that was uh, actually I knew Bunnahabhain. that was actually given Snuffy. to me by um, by um, a, a British journalist um, a friend of mine, um, and um, it has been sitting in my office and was largely untouched until we started drinking scotch during the recording of Rational Security. Uh, and so today, Shane and I polished it off, uh, for, which is why this episode has been so lively and articulate yeah. and, and with, with so few inhibitions. There's a correlation um, between downloads of this podcast and downloads of that scotch. Right. And so, um, we are in the market for a new bottle of scotch before next week. Um, if you guys have suggestions as to what should replace the Bunahaben, uh, as, as, uh, 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 for, for the next block of rational security episodes, tweet them to at RATL security and, uh, uh, give us your scotch recommendations. Please do. Uh, and we are going to see you again in a whole new world. It's going to be a whole new world, you guys. One way back. or another. Yeah. A new this fantastic is coming point to of the view. end. It's coming to the end. Just like we're at the end of the podcast. Listeners, please vote if you are in swing yeah. states. Do go vote. Go, go vote. vote. It's a joy. I love voting. I do too. I love it. I have so much fun. I did it. I felt great about democracy for like two minutes. Then I drank some scotch and I feel really good about most things now. All right. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can get links to our past shows and our archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us at RATL Security, where you should be telling us which scotch to bring on the podcast next. When you download the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher, please remember to leave us a rating and a review. Uh, thanks to those who've been doing that. We really appreciate it. It helps people find the podcast, as you know. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our our music was performed this week by Donald Trump and the Bludgeon Bears. Now we don't, dun, dun, dun. No. don't like that one. I think I think uh, Donald Trump and the bear costumes. The bear costumes, the bear servers, mm, mm. the red handeds. I got nothing this week. I want to know what you're going to do for next week. No, I, I'm going to think about that real hard. I did yeah. not think about this one that the hard. The electoral this week. votes. Yeah, but we maybe talk. Maybe hold. Maybe switch to tequila next week. It's all rigged. It's all rigged. Uh, Sophia Yan, who actually plays our music, is probably somewhere out there listening to this, crying. But we'll be watching the voting returns on Tuesday with the rest of us. So, on behalf of my friends, uh, my friends, your friends too, Ben Wittis and Susan Hennessy. I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Hang in there. Go vote. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.